and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I am one of your hosts, Miss Melmoy. Hello. I am the other host, <laughs> Mr. Crackers. Hi. Great. Hello. Excellent. Perfect. And it is episode 44 of our Great Wanderers podcast. And we are discussing the Amazon adaptation of Picnic at Hanging Rock, which many of you may actually already know about, but also many of you may remember from way back in the day when we did our top five. Episode one. Episode right? one. Yes, I think Two? it was episode one. one. It was one of those. Um, we did our top five horror films and horror books, and this was the the original film was in Mr. Kreger's top five horror films. And we found out literally three or four days ago that they were turning it into an Amazon <laughs> miniseries. Literally less than a week ago. <laughs> um, and we both took it upon ourselves on this long weekend to binge the crap out of it. There wasn't much crap to binge out of it because it was only six episodes. But um, yeah, so we're going to talk about that. Going to talk about the a little bit about the original movie, about the book. Just it's all Picnic at Hanging Rock um, this episode. Everything. 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 Novel. Movie. Mini series. Sexy paintings. Maybe. Maybe. Um, Maybe. Lots of homoeroticism. Um, Get excited about socks. Probably. (laughs) Check Etsy. (laughs) Um. But yeah, so, but before we do that, do we have any. A lot of homoeroticism. You're right. Sorry. Yes, he caught up to the homoeroticism. Since this will be our first of three episodes in June. Oh, there we go. Happy Pride, everyone. Happy Pride. (laughs) Um, Not planned, but it's working out well. But it worked out splendidly. Thank you. Way to kick off Pride Picnic at Hanging Rock. But before we do all of that, uh, some horror headlines, perhaps. Yes. Um, Mine, I'm going to do... I've seen some other stuff happening that I could talk about. You know, we're we're gearing up for summer. It's Memorial Day weekend. That means it's prime time for horror. But I just want to do a a quick update about um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, GSK, specifically... My adorable cinnamon bun, Paul Holes. Oh, Paul Holes. Ah, exactly right. Paul Holes, who was convinced by um, uh, Billy Jensen and the kid to go to this year's Crime Con in Nashville, where he was met with... I remember that at something called Crime Con. (laughs) Exactly. Next year, let's look into it. All right. (laughs) um go on Paul, our patreon join our one patron who's giving exactly. us a dollar and we will yes. get there which not revealing will keep your privacy but thank you to our very first <laughs> patron over on patreon you know you'll be getting you the june the first newsletter uh the, the oh, that's gonna be fun it's gonna be addition of the Howler next month it'll be yeah. personalized yeah oh my god um anyway so Paul Holes was convinced to go to crime crime, and he was met with a standing ovation when he was brought out. And he talked about uh, the case and his work with Michelle. And um, then he was brought on as a surprise guest on the My Favorite Murder podcast, which I've mentioned before on here. 
Um, it's a good podcast. If you like true crime, go check out their most recent episode where he comes in and he talks about his relationship with Michelle. And um, he referred to her as his partner because um, he didn't like have a partner on this case. But that's how he viewed Michelle. And it's it's really cute. And he has other fun tidbits about uh, about the case. And, and they ask him about um, basically what he can tell them about um, D'Angelo and, and he has had a chance to talk to him. He's, he went to the house and all of that. And he has some good stories about the current state of the investigation, which is, um, and some good insight, which, you know, everyone is sort of chomping at the bit for. He also, he also, they asked him if he was aware. I don't know. Are you, did you see the um, hashtag hot for holes? That was going on. <laughs> no, but I love it. Yeah. And they asked him if he was aware of that. And he, he said he was aware now, but he wasn't for a while because he doesn't have Twitter because the idea of Twitter makes him anxious. <laughs> <laughs> now is, I'm sure that definitely helps. That's my update. It's, it's actually not really about GSK. It's more just about Paul. <laughs> Paul Holes is adorable. <laughs> My cinnamon bun investigator. So, how about you, Miss Mel? Uh, the only thing I have is that by the time this comes out, we will be one week away from the re- release of Hereditary. Um, which is meant to be crazy good, um, according to reviews that have come in so far. Um, and I know Mr. Craigers usually doesn't like to put weight in Rotten Tomatoes, just because it's a, you know, it's an aggregator. Um, but both on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, Metacritic, I want to say Metacritic. It's not. Let's, it. make, let's make our own <laughs> <laughs> movie reviewing system, and we'll call it Metacritic. Um, but on both, it's got a one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes uh, with thirty. How many crickets can you get interested in your movie? <laughs> thirty reviews in, um, and it's got an eighty-nine on Metacritic. So um, it's meant to be pretty friggin' terrifying and pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, not and much I, else is known about it. <laughs> I adore Tony Collette. Yeah. Uh, basically, the premise of this is that a the grandmother, a grandmother, not the grandmother, like a grandmother, um, the original <laughs> grandmother, <laughs> dies, um, and for some reason this affects the her granddaughter in in some fashion. Um, in a very creepy way, she goes a little bit you know, Damien Thorne post grandmother's death. Um, and there's some sort of family secret of, to their ancestry that's coming about. And there's somebody literally on fire in the trailer. So there's that. Never forget that it played before a showing of Peter Rabbit in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> we did that as a horror headline, right? We did that. So it's back so now we, just yeah. to say it's almost here and it's meant to be very, very good. Um, uh, it's, it's just, I'm excited. I'm terrified. It's going to be great. Yes. I'm um, very excited for her. It had a, a good response at Sundance. So mm-hmm. good stuff, kids. Other than that, I don't think you really have too much going on. There's another Friday the 13th coming up in July. July. Yes. So we've Ms. got Mel some and I are aware that we owe you guys from the April Friday the 13th. A lot of stuff went down in April. Yes. You'll remember 
Mr. Eric's pancreas wasn't super interested in being a pancreas. In being a pancreas. Um, she and I are going to talk about that, what we're going to do, if we'll pick up with part three, if we'll do part three and part four. Don't worry. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Either way, we're never going to run out of Friday the 13th because one day we are going to get to Jason X. Yes, we are. And it's going to be the best day of everyone's life. It's going to be really great. That's, I mean, this show will not end until we get to talk about Jason X. Jason X. Because we have to. Oh. Um, yeah, other yes. than that, it's kind of a lull period right now. We're, uh, We're gearing up, though. We're, we're gearing up. up. Um, there's some great, you know, summer reads out there. I got Gerald's Game from a thrift store, so, you know, some Ooh. good kinky reads. Nice. Um, but, nice. and I feel like, what did I just, no, I guess I didn't. I thought I finished something, but that was, I guess I dreamt that. Well, you I just, know. I just saw in your Goodreads that you're, you started Annihilation. I did. I'm like <laughs> so good. 60 pages into it right now. Um, but I like have to like just be so like ready to read it because it's like it's got long chapters and there's very few page breaks. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like okay, when you read it, you have to be prepared to like devote an hour to it because you mm -hmm. might need an hour. It's a it's a like a oh I have to sit down and read book. Yeah. I just got to the part where um, spoilers for all of you, I guess the um, the who leaves this not the surveyor. The first person who just the first person up and disappears in the night. I forget who it is. It's okay. not this, not the biologist because she's the biologist, and it's not the psychiatrist because the psychiatrist is up to some crazy stuff. The surveyor is still there, so whatever the other person was, she's gone. <laughs> okay, she's I, yeah, I know, I know where you are. She's Audi, and they're like exploring the tunnel tower, tunnel tower, tower tunnel. Yeah, there's a debate there. That you short for. I love um, that book. The movie was supposed to be pretty good. Yes, and uh. I've been holding off on doing the movie just because I've heard that it is a combination of all three books. Yes, so you was, actually told me that. Yes, so oh. I was like, all right, I'm going to have to read all three before I go in to watch the movie. Yeah, because I had read I read the first one a couple years ago, and I was fully prepared to go see the movie, but then you told me that it was a combination of the entire mm -hmm. trilogy, so I was like, oh, let me hold off because I haven't read the second and third books yet. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll get to those this summer Sweet. just so I can see the movie and maybe do a review of it for the blog because it's a, it's a movie of the year and we haven't talked about it on the show. Yeah. I think it's meant to be on Amazon. Pretty oh, is it? Yeah. Either now or pretty soon or something like that. They were talking about putting it on Amazon way earlier, like not long after its theatrical release, just because mm -hmm. like it was an experiment, I guess they were trying in terms of like releasing films because it's well, meant they, to be a very good movie it just did not get yeah. any box office whatsoever right well and the big trend in movies in general is that they're they're shortening the gap between the theatrical release and sort of like streaming the yeah. availability um because uh, most people aren't going to the theater as much anymore they just wait well so. when you get solo but what you really want is a leia standalone film sometimes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not to, I mean, not to offend Miss Mel, but I don't think I want any of them anymore. I don't even think I want episode nine at this oh, point. Wow. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. Just like, since December. I mean, if it makes you feel better, there's not going to be another Star Wars movie until next, next Christmas. 
that does make me feel better. So it's just been a, it's just a lot. I don't know. I feel like in the the months since Last Jedi, I've been like, oh my god, it was so bad. I actually was having this is so off topic. I was having this conversation <laughs> with somebody right before I went to go see Avengers. How we were both like, yeah, like it was really good. It was really enjoyable. And then like a week went by, and it was like, oh, I was actually a really <laughs> bad movie. <laughs> I'm actually really glad Gigi Abrams is coming back to do the last one. Who would have thought? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, seriously. Because um, <laughs> we can talk about Force Awakens, but... Um, I do like Force Awakens. I mean, it's, it's derivative, but what do you want? Star Wars. Yeah. My favorite so far has been Rogue One. I haven't seen oh, Solo yet. Rogue One was so good, uh, and Solo was such a piece of garbage. Because Solo, I... Don't get me wrong. I love... Han Solo, but... <laughs> <laughs> I love all my children that, equally. I love all my children. Earlier that day, I don't. I don't care, care for C three PO. He wasn't um, in the movie. They broke tradition. R2 I heard about that. Not in the movie. It destroyed everything. I heard my coworker. She got. She got. Um, they didn't advance everything for you, people. Right now. Yeah, she got tickets to do an advanced screening about a week before the movie was released at the Air and Space Museum, and so. I was asking her about it afterwards, and I was like, are the droids in it? And she was like, what? what <laughs> I was like, C-3PO and R2-D2. Like, do they make a cute little cameo? And she's like, oh, oh, no, they're not in it. And I was like, <gasps> Yeah, no, I had that realization I clutched today. my pearls so hard. Because there was a, on TNT all day today, because it's Memorial Day, there was a Star Wars marathon. So obviously I was watching it. And um, I thought to myself, self, 3PO and R2-D2 and all the movies, good for them. And then I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And then I did a rewind to Friday. I was like, wait, mm -hmm. nope, that definitely were not in it. That was terrible. That was horrible. And then on Twitter, I saw a spoiler, which I, I won't say here. I saw a spoiler of somebody, some character who does make a cameo in the film, and I rolled my eyes so hard. I thought I was going to have to go to the doctor to get them on. I reacted very big in the theater and it was like <laughs> there was somebody right behind me because somebody felt the need to it was not a full theater and somebody felt the need to sit right behind me in the theater and oh as soon God, as I, I saw that. this this aforementioned being make their cameo like I was like I can't pace in the theater because people are here like I can't get up and pace about this because other people are here so I just kind of have to people. sit here and just sort of curl, curl in on myself and think about it <laughs> Curl into a tiny ball no, of rage. Solo was a misfire. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Um, I don't, I think, okay, here's how we're going to loop it back to the show. <laughs> because <laughs> Mel and I are firm believers that you don't over-mythologize. Mm, mm -hmm. And Solo is classic 21st century Hollywood over-mythologizing of a pre-existing franchise. We do not need Han Solo's backstory or origin story to make him interesting. He is already very interesting was, that, as yeah. he stands. Yeah, that was my thing. I Rogue One worked because it was a one-off line. And they're all new characters. In the we very beginning of the movie. Yeah. And it was all people, we were like, I don't know who the fuck this person is. It worked. You took so we're meeting them for the first time. Yeah. Like, we don't care. We know Han Solo was probably a dick in his childhood. Like, it's fine. We don't need Slumdog Millionaire in space to tell us that. 
No, we which don't. Which is basically what that movie was. Um, which, of If anything, it's going to make him less interesting. No, it is. It definitely, like, I was like, Alden Ehrenreich did really good. Like, he actually, the best part of the movie oh, was how well he captured like Harrison him. Ford's nuances, especially because the internet was giving him such, like, shit because they didn't like his casting. He was great. I um, knew he was going to do good because he was the true standout of um, the Coen Brothers' latest mm, movie, Caesar. Yeah. Um, he was really good in that. Yeah. Well, him and Channing Tate were the standouts, I should say. For and Craig. then <laughs> shortly after that, he was cast as Han Solo, and I was like, he's going to nail it. And I was like, whether or not the movie is going to be good is irrelevant, but he's going to do no, good. No, no, he did, he did the best in that movie. And this was a movie that also had Woody Harrelson and Paul Bettany in it. And he was the standout actor, so take, you know. And that makes me sad because Woody Harrelson is very talented. Woody Harrelson is good. It was just, it was such a bland Oh, it was? Oh, okay. He, I was just going to say, did they give him shit to work with? Not really. They gave him, like, exactly what you'd expect him to work with. Yeah, but then that's boring. Yeah, so it was what it was. The droid was great, but the droid does not make it through even, like, half the movie, so don't get attached. Um, but yeah, this loops back in though because you know what doesn't overmythologize? Picnic at <laughs> Hanging Rock. Picnic at Hanging Rock. Picnic at Hanging Rock. Hanging Rock. Hanging Rock. Let's talk about that picnic. All right. So where do we start with this? Um, I defer to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I was so surprised about that. There's only two of us. Like, mm-hmm. yes. We just gave him so- a five-minute lecture on Star Wars, so. Yeah, we just dovetail a little bit. Sorry, guys. I mean, most people are Star Wars fans. You guys are probably fine. We're all fine. We're all fine. Now, as Miss Mel mentioned, Picnic at Hanging Rock has been mentioned on the show at least once, probably seven times in passing over the last 44 episodes. I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. We're developing quite a catalog at this point. But it was definitely referenced in episode one, in which Miss Mel and I did our top five uh, horror movies. Did we also do our books? No, I think I can't we remember if that. they were the same episode, but one and two were definitely top five horror movies and horror books. Cool. In some fashion. Yes. And Picnic at Hanging Rock was one of mine. It's my third favorite horror movie of all time. And so I talked a little bit about that then. Um, but this is now. But this and this is now. And if you had asked me then if I thought the story would ever be revisited in any way, I would have told you that you were goddamn insane. Actually, not only if you had asked me then, if you had asked me a week ago, I probably would have said you were insane. <laughs> Literally five minutes before you stumbled on the internet and then texted me, Huh, there's a hanging rocks miniseries on Amazon this Friday. Yeah. Talk about a sleeper fucking hit. Anyway. It was what, like a Wednesday? You were like, so? <laughs> I, I think it was. And I was like, so there's a picnic on a rock miniseries coming out on Friday. And it stars Natalie Dormer. I was like, oh, the end of yeah. that sentence is what hooked me in. There were a lot of question marks. <laughs> so. Like, How did you do this without my knowledge? <laughs> I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I made this and forgot to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I did the casting for it. Actually, if I did the casting, I would have found a way to snuck in Katie McGrath and you would have been really mad. I would have been so mad. (laughs) Um, The only only way I would have accepted Katie McGrath in a Picnic and Hanging Rock adaptation that I was in charge of is if Katie McGrath was playing 
either Greta McCraw <laughs> or Edith. <laughs> I you're gonna say Edith. <laughs> She'd have to be Greta. She's too old to be Edith. She would have to be Greta, which is even better because Greta McCraw never appears again. (laughs) She doesn't say much either. Good. Awesome. Anyway, (laughs) if you haven't been with us since episode one, and that's fine, and if you don't remember back to episode one, it's also fine. Picnic and hanging. Pause and take a minute and go listen and come back. That's also fine. Yeah, go for it. That's also fine. Listen, live. Your life. We support you because you're beautiful. Do whatever you need to do. Happy Pride. Happy <laughs> Pride. <laughs> we didn't plan that at all. No. Nope. Um, we actually didn't. <laughs> no, we, should, we really didn't. We mean that. Mm-hmm. So, Picnic and Hanging Rock is an uh, Australian novel by the author Joan Lindsay. And... It opens on Valentine's Day, 1900, um, in the town of uh, Woodend, Victoria, Australia. Victoria, you people don't know, is a um, territory, state, province. I wanted to say province, but I was like, nope, that's Canada. Yeah, I think at the time it was a a colony of Australia. At the time that this takes place, it's a colony. Today it is a, a state. I believe. Yeah, I don't know. The Australians can correct us on this. Yeah. Oh, if we have Australian listeners, that would be amazing. Tell us about Hanging Rock. Have you been there? Have you been there? Is it nuts? Is it nuts? Is it scary? Um, and so, on St. Valentine's Day in 1900, in the town of Woodend, Victoria, Australia, at the Appleyard College for Young Ladies, um, a picnic is going to take place that... That Saturday for the girls. Valentine's Day. And for, and for Valentine's Day. And they're going to a local geographical landmark known as Hanging Rock. And they're all very excited. You know, it's um, this boarding school is for uh, English girls, right? English wealthy, for the most part, girls to get their sort of proper traditional boarding school, sort of charm school education, right? Mm-hmm. So they're very sheltered, they're very cloistered, and they go out on their picnic, and they're escorted by their math teacher and their French teacher. And Wait, Ms. McCraw taught math. She did. Oh, it's not brought up in the miniseries. Yeah, because she. Yeah, they didn't say what she taught. It's brought up in the novel. <laughs> Just and assume she existed at the school with an indiscriminate there title. <laughs> yeah, this is Miss McCraw. She. You know, there's Miss McCraw. There she is. You know, she's um, she's uh, anyway. This is Sage over here. <laughs> this is Sage over here. Were you trying to say that with an Australian accent? No, I was trying to say it with a Peter accent. Oh, oh, I thought you were trying to say it with an Australian accent. I, I was can't like, That's do Australian funny. accents unless I'm trying to be Steve Irwin. I could just say good night, mate. Yeah, and then you get there. Like you have to say something to get there. They're very and then like weird. every Australian is probably like, mate. Like, we don't say I that as much. Australian. I have actually many Australian friends. You think I'd be better at it? Well, you know. <laughs> what the fuck was I talking about? Oh, right. McCraw, the teachers, the picnic. Yes. And then, and then go on the picnic. And the long story short of it is that three of the young ladies and Miss McCraw, the math teacher, <laughs> disappear while up on the rock. 
and only one young girl, Edith, who went up with the party but did not disappear, is able to survive and tell the tale. But she remembers nothing of what happened. And the disappearance of these young girls. And Miss McCraw. And Miss McCraw. I really forget that Miss McCraw is missing. Is also missing, yeah. Because no one gives a shit about her. I'm just like, oh, she's not here. It's whatever. And the disappearance of Miss McCraw and the young girls. See, I put Miss McCraw first for one. (laughs) Begins to unravel the school and the community around the school. And things gradually descend from order into chaos. And no spoilers. We'll probably spoil it later, though. Everything ends in tragedy. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is the basis of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Now, if I were to cast us in Picnic at Hanging Rock, Ooh. you are Miss Appleyard, Mrs. Appleyard, <laughs> specifically Natalie Dormer. Specifically, yes, I'm specifically Natalie Dormer's Miss Appleyard, who we'll have to talk about this. Um, very, uh, very like, interesting take on that role. A very interesting take on the role, um, and we will get into that. Yeah, um, that will be spoilers. Yeah. You can't but, you can't talk about that without spoiling it. Yeah, that's that's hard. But you are both we, versions we of able, her. We might be able to talk I mean. around it. We might be able to talk around it. I doubt it. It will break down. I know. We can try. But, right. It'll break down. Here's, here's the thing: if I'm Natalie Dormer's Miss Appleyard, you're Rachel Roberts' Mrs. Appleyard from the original. <laughs> I was gonna say in either situation, Colleen is Irma. Yeah. Jamie's Edith. Jamie's Edith. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I was at with that. There's a lot we could do here because we could cast our friends as the girls. We could cast <laughs> everybody just in the larger cast. In which you case, could... I'm Miranda because of course I make you guys go up on the rock. You guys. You're in the girls. You're Miranda. <laughs> I'm Irma. Colleen's Marion. Jamie's still, still Edith. Edith. <laughs> Um, but yes, so this is, this is the thing, right? So this is, this is our premise. Um, so so the novel was written in 1967 by Joan Lindsay. It was, uh, originally adapted into a 1975, um, mystery horror film, uh, which of course I mentioned is my third favorite horror film of all time, directed by the great Peter Weir. And it was recently... (laughs) adapted as we discovered <laughs> into a 2016 miniseries streaming on Amazon starring Natalie Dormer in the um, focal role of Mrs. Appleyard. Mrs. Appleyard is the headmistress mm-hmm. of a figure Appleyard College for Young Ladies. Which if you're casting Natalie Dormer in this role you know immediately because it's like when I heard Natalie Dormer I was like thinking I was like Miranda I was like she's way too old to be friend. <laughs> Not that Natalie okay. Dormer is old but like when I saw role. that too, I was like, starring Natalie Dormer. And then before I like truly investigated, I was like, is she playing Miranda? She was like, she's too old. It's like when we found out Susan Egan was coming back to play Belle for some reason. Listen. Um, but the weird thing is that Natalie Dormer is also too young to be Mrs. Appleyard. <laughs> she's somewhere in between. It's so weird. Yeah. They were I just like, we want to put Natalie Dormer in this, and this yeah, is the I best Yeah, I don't know fit. if they really wanted her, or if she is really attached to Picnic at Hanging Rock as a story, which would make me very happy. That would also <laughs> explain a lot. Like, 
she had to be in it. <laughs> yeah, no, see, that's the thing, right? Because I can't find even a lot about the production of this. Like, this just appeared out of nowhere one day, which is very Picnic and Hanging Rock. It's very Picnic and Hanging um, Rock. No, it totally surprised everybody. Like, um, there's, there's nothing about casting. Like, there's, there's nothing about production except that it filmed sometime last year in various places in, like, I think Australia and... Um, Maybe Canada, because it was an Australia. It was produced. It was an Australian produced series. That's good. Um, and I think it actually premiered in Australia before it came on Amazon US. Um, and Amazon US but puts it up as season one, which, with the way they end it and the way this whole thing works, I don't. I, I, okay. Um, but they've told this the whole story. Yeah, but they also told the whole story in the first season of Handmaid's Tale, and look what happened. So. Good point. Um, I mean, yeah, you can't throw a rock anymore without, you know, a literary, classic literary adaptation getting adapted. And especially expanded. when Natalie Dormer is the... I mean, there's other people in here, like Philip Quaist is like a huge theater actor. Um, yeah. And Neil Stone is like a huge character actor. But like Natalie Dormer is like a huge draw here, obviously. Like, and it's probably the reason people know this now exists on the internet. Um, and I'm thinking, just based on all of this, is that they... They produced and wrote this with Natalie Dormer in mind. It could be. I just because I of the way, it. like, and you know, like, I, obviously in the original, there's a lot of stuff about Mrs. Appleyard we don't know, and there's obviously some stuff there. Here, they like yeah. go full into it and kind of paint a bigger picture <sighs> that I feel like a like they were going to do anyway, but b also like very much is a product of well, in our minds, Natalie Dormer is playing this role. That could very well be. We don't. Yeah, you're right. We don't have any information about the production of this or how it came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've seen, like no one really knew it was happening. Um, and Picnic and Hanging Rock. I don't know if cult following is right, but it does have a very small dedicated following. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've. Back in the days of the IMDb message boards, I had like some good fr- good online friends who I still look at those. We became friends because we were we were like dissecting Picnic and Hanging Rock on the IMDb message board, um, and it was there were only like you know fifty people ever on that message board, but they were very loyal to Picnic and Hanging Rock. <laughs> that's what counts yes yeah so it's like it's not necessarily a cult following but it's like a sub cult following like i don't know if we have a term for this like i don't know because it's something it's... that people will crawl out of the woodwork for as yeah. evidenced um but I it's think not even super well known back in episode one i said this is a very unknown horror film you know but i think it I'm pretty sure I like said I was like it's probably the one horror film I think more people should watch mm-hmm. um, than have seen it, and I hope the miniseries sends people to which the- is very strong on its own sends people both to the novel and to the original 1975 film. Yeah. Um, you hadn't seen it. I hadn't. No, I watched it have because you, you brought it, it up. Yes, yeah. I watched it. Yeah. I watched it a while ago. I feel like I should have told you that I watched it. <laughs> I watched it like immediately after you mentioned it. I was like, oh, I should go watch this. And I you, actually, you know what? I think I remember you saying now that you watched it and me being like, isn't it the greatest thing ever? Yeah. Um, so where to begin with this? I guess 
I mean, I feel like our usual structure of going chronologically, like we can maybe just kind of throw that out the window for now and yeah, we can just jump back and forth. We can go by character. We could go by the character and we could do, um, yeah, yeah, let's just jump. No, no constraints. Mini no series, constraints. movie. Right. I'm going to start with just because I need to bring her up. Samara Weaving as Irma Leopold. Uh, <laughs> so yes, first Mama. of all, first of all, I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, this is great. It's good. I'm into it. Like two or three episodes go by. I'm looking at the chick playing Irma, Irma Leopold, who is one of the girls who goes missing. And I'm like, <laughs> is this like she looks so damn familiar but i cannot figure it out and i was like I, I don't know what it is all of a sudden i have this realization and i slam on my keyboard to pause it <laughs> so i was like oh my god she's the babysitter <laughs> from the babysitter from the babysitter guys this is a direct show reference yes, from the babysitter that show, that movie that was supposed to be a booze and booze but turned out to be amazing from booze and booze, number five was it something Four? like that yeah, the babysitter, Samara Weaving. Incredible movie for some yes. reason. Makes an appearance as Irma Leopold in Picnic at Hanging Rock, circa 2018. Fun fact: she is the niece of Hugo Weaving. And then when you look at her again, knowing that, you're like, "Oh wow, I see it." You see it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. Mm. So yes. So let's start with her, I guess, because so. Sure. Irma is one of the girls who goes missing. She's kind of part of this trio that is Miranda and their friend Marion and Irma. Irma is a member of the Rothschild family. So everyone's like, oh, you know, like she's basically the top tier of the girls who are here, like amongst the, the wealthy, like she's obviously up there. Um, and there's some asinine comments made from, you know, the Victorian gentry about her being a Hebrew, quote unquote, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, basically, which I thought was an was an interesting historical touch. It was, um, yeah. They're basically at a a lawn party. What do they call yeah. it? A fete? A fay? They call it a fete, which is what that, that's. I mean, that is what girls would have called it at the time. Because, um, but a garden. They're at a garden. Party. They're at a. They're at a lawn party. They're playing. Yeah. It's it's Memorial Day for Australia. It's a yeah, barbecue essentially. Um, <laughs> and for like, yeah for upper class english you know people um and while she's there it's like it's kind of an occasion for us to learn about the girls because we basically scope around to different people at the party who are gossiping about the that's a really interesting way i'm sorry no go for it just i thought it was a really interesting way to start the story for the miniseries because both in the novel and the film we don't this fate, this garden party doesn't exist. Yeah, we start on the day, and of the it's about how it's a good chunk of the the first half of the episode is this fate. It's um, probably twenty five minutes. Yeah, and it's basically where we learn like everything we need to know because everyone's gossiping about the girls and they're gossiping about Miss Appleyard and Miss Appleyard's kind of using the girls to like up herself in socially. Socially, but basically, what we learn about Irma is that she is a Rothschild um, through her mother, I believe. Or her father. I can't remember. Her mother is remarried. I think it's her father. Yeah. Um, but her mother is remarried. Uh, she hates her stepfather. Which... Oh, sorry. What? what? Keep going. No, you can't. I was just going to say just the quickest of sidebars just so everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Like, in the year 1900, it would have been a huge deal 
to have a connection to the Rothschild family. Yeah. Um, they were, if you don't know, um, a very wealthy and in the English branch of the family, aristocratic um, sort of dynasty yeah. that came to prominence <clears throat> primarily in the late Victorian era and throughout the Edwardian era. And they were one of the few families who were accepted into high society, one of the few Jewish families mm-hmm. accepted into high society because of their extreme wealth. Well, they started, actually, the family is traced back to Austria where... Um, uh, the patriarch of the family, I forget his name, was basically the treasurer to the Archduke in Austria. Um, um, and that's basically where... Yeah, yeah. The, the term was a lot more racist back then, but we'll just say he was the treasurer um, uh, to the Archduke. And that's kind of where the family comes from. And there's branches of the family in various parts of Europe. It's kind of like the Habsburgs a little bit, where you've got different yeah. different spokes. But... um. A girl, Irma, over here, aka the babysitter, is a Rothschild. Um, it's kind of suggested that she's not like a super prominent, not from a super prominent side part Branch. of the family, you know, like her. But it's still like um, it would be like being a Kennedy, a Kennedy, or a or a Vanderbilt, or a Rockefeller. Yeah. yeah, like she's wealthy, she's chill, she's good off. Like doesn't matter what she has she's social do. connections. Yeah. yeah. And that comes up a bit throughout the show is that people bring up her being a Rothschild and like yada yada. So anyway, we learned that at the party and we mm-hmm. learned some other things. Um, and it's just, it's, it's interesting. So with Irma, Irma. Yeah. <laughs> with Irma mm-hmm. and our introduction to Irma specifically in the miniseries, which is very different. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's it's essentially through this party. Yeah. What do you think that like changes about her as as how we know her as the audience? So for me, what it does immediately is makes me kind of color the way that they're going about trying to find these girls because to them it's like, oh shit, like we lost a Rothschild mm-hmm. kid. Like that's not be good. A huge problem for a lot of people. Um. Which doesn't come up, like, vocally a lot because people are so fucking focused on Miranda constantly. <laughs> um, that The fact that it's like, oh, man, like, we lost a, a Rothschild kid, like, doesn't super come up, but it's, like, it's implanted in... Because, you know, culturally, we, you know, watching it, we hear that and we, like, no, okay, like, we get it because we understand at this point in Victoria in- Victorian England where, like, the Rothschild would have stood, like, aristocratically. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's like, okay, this person's important. And we get the feeling that amongst her group of friends, in terms of a hierarchy of aristocracy, she is the most important, but she's not the ringleader, Miranda is. Which is so interesting, right? Yeah. Like, it's through these implications and this knowledge of, you know, Miranda's, or Irma's um, lineage, lineage, bloodline, what have you. She's clearly the most prestigious student attending Appleyard College. Um, and it's her name and her reputation that um, gets the most gossip surrounding the school. Gossip in a positive sense. Yeah. But well, amongst because this- at the party, Appleyard uses her to get in with the Fitzhuberts. Exactly right. Um, and she that says is- she'll chaperone her for a party. 
Yes, that's why she's invited to the to the the Fitzhubert's annual soiree. Um, Craig and I are having a soiree in August. And <laughs> you're all invited. <laughs> Come dressed as your favorite. Aristocratic, aristocratic. Come to my 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 eight by eleven patio. Yeah, <laughs> we can only have electric grills. Oh, right. So Irma, in terms of social status, mm. right, is the most, for lack of a better word, important yeah. person at Appleyard College. But amongst the clique of the senior girls, which are the three girls plus Edith, who go missing, Irma is not the leader. Edith's a, a middle girl, right? She's an intermediate? She's not, she's or she's, intermediate. she's yeah, an intermediate she's student. Yeah. Um, she's, I don't, it comes up in the novel. We know that um, Edith is 14. Okay. And the, the other three girls, the seniors, are, you know, senior. They're 17, 18. Something like that, yeah. Marrying age. Breeding age. Yeah, so, and this comes up quite a bit because immediately Miranda, like, is drawn to Mike Fitzhubert, Michael Fitzhubert, who's the heir to this Fitzhubert blah, 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 blah. Um, Fitzhubert. And she's immediately the taken. Honorable the honorable Michael Fitzhubert. Fitzhubert. She's immediately title. taken with him. He's really gay, so he's not quite taken. <laughs> um, but you know, like they think, oh, this would be such a sick match. You know, Mike Fitzhubert, Rothschild, boom, they're into it. It comes up later as well during a reading when um, this one girl asks basically mm -hmm. what a word means in French, which the word I forget what it was in French, but in English it means slut. And she um. asks what it means because she heard Irma mention it and. Madame Diane de what is it Ponty Ponty Mademoiselle de Poitiers yeah the the French lady you know gets Thank mad at her six years of French <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Spanish person so I'm lost here um, but she you know she says she was like well I thought if a Rothschild could say it then it must be you know blah 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 blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like it is a thing that comes up that you know Irma is clearly like the highest caliber of the type of student that Appleyard College wants to attract. Um, she's also the one who kind of like most easily sees that Miss Appleyard is not Mrs. Appleyard is not what she says she is because she well, says she is, pretty yes. immediately in the show she's like if she's from Kensington then I'm a I don't know something Victorian but um <clears throat> right if she's from Kensington I'm yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, something about something. Lon something about London. Yeah, I think. but she recognizes that she's a social climber pretty quick because of her own standing. And it's interesting because later when we see where Miranda comes from, um, it is very evident like how different their worlds are and how much that kind of feeds into Irma's ultimate resentment of Miranda, who mm -hmm. is less than her in you know every sense of that in Victorian England, but is still the person who runs their little gang. Um, but Irma, interestingly enough, is also the only one of the missing girls to be found. Exactly. And every iteration of the story, novel, film, miniseries, a week after the disappearance, Irma is discovered by Michael Fitzhubert. She is saved and brought back into the 
open arms of civilization, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but she doesn't remember what happened. Yeah. And her her reappearance and the fallout from her being involved in the event drastically alters her life. Yeah. Um, as you would imagine. As one would imagine. She ultimately... She makes some attempts to, you know, reintegrate herself, but it's not working. You know, the students kind of turn on her. Um, Michael rejects her, not because of anything to do with her. It's just, it is what it is. Um, Obviously, she takes it personally because she doesn't know. Um, You know, so she kind of, like, attempts to reintegrate herself into this society and just is completely, like, rejected in every way and eventually just leaves Australia um, to go back to... London mm-hmm. or wherever the hell she's from um because of you know it, and it's such an interesting like it was like such a surreal scene that I was surprised that it was actually happening and not a dream sequence when the students turn on Irma later in the show when she shows up and they all turn around and they start asking her they're like what you do to Miranda where's Marion and they kind Where of come at her yeah. and Gail Stone's character um Miss Lumney Lumley just gets in on it and starts like spewing all this anti-Semitic mm-hmm. crap at her and like all this other stuff. And it just, it was like this crazy, like hip, like hypnotic scene of her being like, kind of like verbally and emotionally lynched by um, the students. And ultimately what leads to her kind of just hightailing it out of um, the college. Yeah. And that's a great scene in the original too. Mm-hmm. When, you know, when she comes in and she's dressed in that red traveling cloak and this, the symbolism of that, right? Like she no longer dresses in the pure sort of innocent white Mm -hmm. that she used to, and that all the other girls are dressed in, you know, something, something has happened to her. She carries herself far more mature, maturely. And that goes deep into the sort of symbolism and layered readings of the story in general, because this is picnic at hanging rock. No matter what version you're experiencing is a very deep layered, slow tension building horror story. And it's very complicated and very fun to unpack. If you like doing those kinds of things Ian, even if you hate saying let's unpack this like I do, but you can't think of it. Speaking of unpacking and I'm wondering if this is something we save for Miranda or discuss now, because it, did kind of come up a little bit with Irma is the major just full-on blunt take on the homoeroticism in this version Um, because before it was very you know it was something that subtly you kind of like would pick up on obviously in 1960s literature it's something that you read into even in the movies it's still something that you kind of read into and take symbolically here like it was it was very like at the forefront is like study of like, I guess like intimate female friendships and that sort of thing, mostly around Miranda, but it is suggested, you know, that Miranda's rejection of Irma might have played into her resentment. Right. Miranda. There is, there is something in, um, Irma's presentation as a character in the miniseries that suggests a sexual fluidness far more than I think previous uh, presentations of the character. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, yeah. <clears throat> so what happens is this. <laughs> There's a couple things that happen, but specifically, so what happens is like, first of all, whatever. I don't know what they got up to in Victorian England. I don't do this. People don't, girls don't do this as far as I know. <sighs> but basically they're hanging around in their bodices and their undies and what have you. And they're like comparing, they're like, oh, who's got the best legs and who's got the best this and who's got the best that. And Miranda's like, who's got the best lips? And I was like, this is really gay. Um, and she just, she like kisses Miranda and like goes for it for a while until Miranda like pushes her away and like says something like super shady and savage to her. Like on her she whole... cuts her down. <laughs> her I can't, I can't remember exactly because I watched all six episodes on Friday. <laughs> like it's she all says something like, cause Miranda, like um, Irma tries to suggest that Miranda's like scared. Like that. She's like, Oh, what are you scared of? Like you're yada yada. And Miranda's like, Oh, I'm not just scared. Like I just don't want it or something like that. I don't know. She says something super savage and then walks out the door. She does. Yeah. And it's like, wow. Your Irma's Irma's dead. Irma died before she ever got to Hanging Rock. <clears throat> but so that's the scene we get kind of just before the end of the episode when Irma turns around to um, Diane and says, she's like, you want to know my secret? Because she was like, you've been keeping secrets. You know something. And she's like, all right, you want to know the secret? And she goes, I hate Miranda. And like turns yeah. and gets on her carriage and rides off into the Australian sunset. Um, so it's like, okay, you've got that element of like, okay, there's this really highly social ranked person who's, you know, taking orders from basically a cattle farmer's daughter. Um, Mm -hmm. You've got this highly ranked social person who like has this weird come on to this cattle farmer's daughter and like gets completely rejected. Um, So it's like, there's a lot of things playing into like Irma's just complete kind of breakdown and like the breakdown in general of like social structure and like, this is this is what's important and it's dying off like the dying of the gentry Mm -hmm. and the rise of the nouveau riche and all that stuff which i think is a huge theme of the picnic and hanging rock story right Mm -hmm. i mean um the the date of and the setting of our story is no accident it's Mm -hmm. we begin things on february 4th 14th uh 1900 that's less than a year before the death of Queen Victoria, um, which was a huge marker for what would be the beginning of the end of the old order. Um, It lasted kind of in a different form through the Edwardian era. And then once that was over, you had World War I and everything was topsy-turvy. You know, this was the new millennium sort of signaling of the change, um, it's also in 1901 that you get the Federation of the Australian Colonies into a Commonwealth. So I think that's very much an underlying theme to what's going on here. And it's that order is the old order is crumbling, but also order in general is breaking down in the wake of hanging rock. And it's like, you know, as you said, it's also no accident that it's like, okay, you've got this person who has a tie to the Rothschild family, which is this huge Victorian aristocratic family. And this is the person we're kind of focusing on who's being undermined by somebody who is from like what would be considered probably, you know, like the nouveau riche self-made sort of class. 
right um, in various ways in you know both station and you know practice like romantically friendship wise what have you she's just been completely like upturned by Miranda um so it just it like the whole thing plays into that so well and I think this show did such a good job with that too by like going deeper like because you know you don't get to see this back story stuff in in the in the movie like you yeah. to see all their little like you know moments where they talk to each other and like what happened before the rock um and all of that so um i think this really did a good job towards like pushing the idea of the end of the old order and you know the the new century essentially into going to the new millennium yeah i agree and at, at first like in the first maybe like two episodes I was kind of wary of how um, things were going to go, sort of including backstories and expanding, mm -hmm. right? Because um, it doesn't only happen with the girls. It also happens a lot with uh, Mrs. Appleyard and with Michael to so an extent as well. I have something well. to say about Mrs. Appleyard's thing, but I'll save it for when we get there. It's <laughs> kind of like a, a, not even a mic drop. It's just like it's a bold statement. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if you'll agree with it, but we'll see. We, we will see. We will see. And and I just wasn't sure, right? Because so much of the beauty of Picnic at Hanging Rock and the story and the film is um, the mystery of it all and how much we don't know. And I just wanted I, – I got nervous because I was like, I still want to make sure that, mm -hmm. like – we leave the story with that sense of unease still hanging what over the us. Fuck happened? <laughs> like what the fuck happened? Like, well, I don't want, I don't want to, I didn't want too much spelled out for me, and that's why but, I, but I liked how the show handled it. Yeah. I so, don't, I don't think we ended up with too much information at all. I like the way the show stunted these moments, right? Like we see yeah. the flashbacks in very small snippets, even that scene where she kisses Miranda is cut off very abruptly and we never come back to it. Like it's never mentioned again. Like it's never something we brush up on again. It's just, it's, it, it's a full stop. And there's a lot of moments that are a full stop like that. There's a lot of unanswered storylines throughout, um, especially with like Marion and Mrs. McCraw and like um, mm -hmm. Mike and Albert. Albert. I want to say like shirtless Australian brush man. His um, shirt. <laughs> Is never on. I'm not complaining. <laughs> I'm not complaining. But it's never on. Um, and, you know, all these stories, like, you get, like, just kind of these full stops on these things that, like, you're expecting, like, oh, yeah, like, we're going to explore that next season. Oh, wait. Nope. And it's like, oh, damn it. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's... But that's the beauty of the story. Yeah. It's like, you know, like, you've got these things where it's like there's hints at all these things going on beneath the surface. But it's Victorian England, so we're not going to talk about them or focus on them because we're all repressing everything. So it fits in, like, perfectly. So that's a good, I mean... I don't know if we want to keep going character by character, but like you saying that makes me think of just sort of the big theme. One of the big themes of this story in general is like women's sexual liberation. Mm -hmm. This gets presented on like a couple of fronts, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So the obvious like sort of like, we'll call it even the YA version of this is Marion and Mrs. McCraw. Um, who Marion is one of the three girls who goes missing. Um, mm -hmm. and she, so she is the, she is also introduced to us at the fate 
as the bastard daughter of um, a member of the gentry. And she's also, I believe yes. she's meant to this... be, her mother is native, like an Australian native. It's indigenous. Aber- yeah. This reimagining of Miranda is strictly specific to the miniseries. Marion. Oh, Marion. <laughs> yeah. The two M's, man. Two M's. They're double M. Um, so, yeah. So, she's introduced to us. Like, she's obviously a girl of color in Victorian England. Not an easy thing to be. Um, she's illegitimate on top of that. Yet, obviously, she's recognized in some way because she's here at finishing school. Um and basically, she has this sort of... We don't realize until late in the show, basically, that she's got this sort of under-the-surface relationship with Miss McCraw, where, like, it was her favorite teacher and yada yada, and they get really close, and basically Miss McCraw kind of keeps her at arm's length because she's like, we can't... This is not a thing we can do, but also, like, like there's this theme between them where she's like, oh, we're going to stay in between. Yeah. <laughs> we're I'm always in between. It's just my... The other people just don't know it. <laughs> so that's how you live your life that's how you live so weirdly that comes from the book Mm -hmm. um where it's there's just in the first couple chapters leading up to the disappearance it's established that Marion is Miss McCraw's favorite student because she's the most naturally gifted at mathematics, which is Ugh. what Miss McCraw teaches. And so Miss McCraw favors Marion, and they kind of have like a whatever just pet favorite student relationship. Yeah. And it's it's more or less abandoned after that as as the rest of the story progresses. So I think they took that for the miniseries and ran with it. <laughs> like, but what if it was the YA novel you all want? <laughs> it's basically what it is. Um, I mean, they don't actually do anything because it's like she says, like, basically the moment Miss McCraw is like, oh, no, like, we should, like, we should, we should do something about this is when she disappears. That's how she disappears, mm-hmm. is that she makes the decision to, like, do something about her kind of very odd relationship with Marion and goes after her up onto the rock and is never seen again. Um, Every time we say that, I think of welcome to the rock from come from away. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're blending things here. We're well-rounded. So yeah, so that's kind of the blunt on the nose version of this, right? Because like, you know, the show gets probably as close as it gets to just being very like head on um, with, you know, the, the stereotypical boarding school, lesbian Mm. romance um which you know by not having it go the full way and kind of stopping it just before it gets to the point where it could be something i think you know they kind of salvaged it because so much of this it all its iterations is about you know like the symbolism and what these things really mean so for me this was just really blunt for what this story normally is but with the way that they kind of they never said what it was like even when Marion and Miss McCraw were by themselves like they never like acknowledged it like formally they never gave a name to it they were just sitting around no. and talking and like were basically talking in half sentences and innuendos about their relationship so that you know saved it for me from being like oh like damn it like it went into a full blown thing which it didn't because like we said like everything is just like stops right in the middle when the girls go missing and you never really get closure no um 
Yeah, it's that struggle, right? Like, <clears throat> all these, these, these things are trying to come to the surface, right? These conflicts between old world and new world and uh, turn of the century and tradition and modernism. And it all seems to come into conflict and it peaks but um, bum with okay. the incident at Hanging Rock, you know, like that's the rock is the touchstone of this great conflict between everything that's going on right now. Yeah. You know? So interesting with you saying that. So when she introduces them to the, the idea of like, oh, you're going to get to go to a picnic at the rock, like, and they get mm-hmm. all hype. And she's like, you may remove your gloves once you get past the town because it's hot out. So it's like, you've got these, like, it's like, oh man, they get to remove their gloves. They immediately do it later. Like, it's a big so, deal for them. It's a big deal for them. You've got that going on later. Miranda and Marion both take off their stockings. Like it's, you know, this yes. moment of liberation at the rock. Um it, it, yes, clothing is used very effectively, both in the movie and in the mini series. Like, not only in with the picnic, but throughout the rest of the story, I think representing that descent from order into chaos. Right, mm-hmm. the slow stripping of the clothes that you mentioned. That's, that's, you know, we take it as shedding the cultural, the stiff cultural restrictions, right? Yeah, because there's this whole thing about how Miranda repeatedly doesn't wear a corset and will, like, take her corsets mm-hmm. and put them out and, like, do crazy shit with them just to fuck with people. Yes. Because she doesn't like wearing them. Mm-hmm. And when Edith is returned to normalcy, she's missing her corset. She's missing her corset. And, you know, and it's remarked upon and then kind of brushed aside. You know, I, we, I mentioned how when Irma, she has the red traveling gown to mark her out from the pure white from earlier. After she comes back, when Edith comes back, she's dressed primarily in very ugly browns, mm-hmm. very earthy. like Which, Edith. <sighs> yeah. So clothing is a great, use of symbolism in a great way to visually represent this sort of and the so with that too i think one of the chaotic descent one of the great scenes that ties into that too is like a scene that was not in the book or the movie as far as i can tell as per the vultures article that i've been using as my like go to um is when miranda gets switched in the hand and um Irma and Marion basically dress her wounds and then like there's this scene of them just slowly disrobing her and taking her clothes off and they bathe her and they they wash her and they clean her hands and then they dress her in a white nightgown and then they take off their clothes and then they put on white nightgowns and they just kind of like fall into like this weird intimate heap on the bed and sleep all tangled up in mm-hmm. each other and there's no words after like um Mm-mm. what's her face um sarah sarah leaves sarah wayburn um who we will also get into um you know and it's just like this music over top of this this scene and it was just so like well done the way that like that's the other thing like there's some nudity here there's <laughs> you see a massive dong at one point i'm gonna you I'm gonna do there's nudity here, but none of it is ever male gaze or feels like it's like done for the sake of, cause I don't even think you see, nope. you just see butts. Like I don't even think you see boobs or anything. You might see what's her face's boobs at one point when she sleeps with the watch dude, but 
but it, even if you do, it's brief. It's brief. It's brief boobage. Um, and that's the same with how the bodies are gazed upon in the movie, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. it's everything is it's. What's great in both visual representations of this story, mm-hmm. and I applaud everybody involved who was able to do this, is that these moments and these scenes are both erotic and platonic Yeah. at the same time, and they're both... You're not sure where it ends. And... Yeah, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's... And, like, at the same time, it's not sexual, but it is sensual, yeah, you know, I like that. Yeah, well, because and so Vulture, I think that's very essential to this story. Vulture made the point too of pointing out, like, yes, it is, uh, you know, in some sense about gay relationships. Like, I think you get that more with Mike and damn it, Albert. Albert. I keep wanting to call him Andrew. <sighs> well, in the movie, he ends up calling him Birdie <laughs> a lot. Yes, and his sister calls him Birdie. Right, which um, is which is the, the connection. Thing. Yeah, so I feel like you get more of that with them and kind of the traditional story of, you know, this sort of um, repressed gay relationship because those two are very much, I feel like, where they end is they're aware of where they both are and what they are and it's just kind of playing the game of... Are you circling back to... Mary yeah, I'm going to circle back. Oh, yeah. oh, oh no, 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 I thought... No, no, no. I meant just now when you said that. I wasn't sure if you were referring no, to Marion. No, I'm talking about and Birdie Pro- and, um, and Mike. Michael. Gotcha. And kind Mike. of like where you've got this situation where it's like they know and they kind of are the only two people who end on a happy note because they you've are. got Birdie going off to join Mike up in Queensland and you know they're just going to go off and have great adventures and yeah. love each other until the end of their days, I'm sure. That's Hopefully. I'm tell myself. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, so like with that, you've got, you know this sort of traditional but happy ending story to to a gay relationship in mm-hmm. this sort of time period or any time period where you've got this repression with the girls it's more portrayed as like it's interesting because i think it gets into the dynamics period of like homosexuality on like the female and male spectrum because with females it just mm. the way it portrays it here it seems so easy to slip into that right And I think you and I have had a conversation about this before where it's like because of the way women interact with each other and the way that they um, are just naturally like kind of encouraged to be intimate with each other, it makes it quote unquote easier for things like that to happen. Whereas with men and what you see with Albert and Mike is that, you know, there's literally one little instance in a scene that kind of clues in as to what, well, there's, I guess there's technically two because he kind of ogles Albert when he changes but like in their last interaction there's like one sort of little indication about what's going on there but nothing else gets to be expressed between them because that's not what it is right but at this boarding school at this this finishing school you know there's all sorts of really gay things going on at this boarding school because it's expected of of the girls like you know they've got these close relationships and it like in in and they're and they're supposed to be close and they're supposed to be close and in our modern gaze of looking at that you know you can see it's like yes on the one hand they're friends and you can see that they are best friends and they're taking care of each other but on the other hand it just slips so easily into like these romantic yes. relationships so i feel like it's you know just a commentary on a the fluidity of female relationships and b 
the kind of spectrums that you get in terms of cultural um, reactions <clears throat> or cultural expectations of female sexuality and female homosexuality and male homosexuality. And male sexuality and male homosexuality. Yeah. That's an excellent Thank you. analysis and, and summary, I think, of all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so you see how we're circling back. <laughs> yes, I love it. I, I completely <laughs> applaud it. There's my physical applause. Um, and there's there's no better vehicle, right, to explore that than the Victorian era, mm -hmm. right? Like everyone like, was know, impressed. We're impressed. Yeah. Impressed. They were impressed with a lot of stuff. They didn't know a lot. But they were also repressing. <laughs> they were repressing so much. Well, this is, no... well it's oh, where we get the, well, it's where we get the birth of kind of the homoeroticism of the vampire, too. This is where Dracula exactly comes right. from and this idea of sexuality and, and the monster in the night. Yes. And if you know your history, and I'll just do like a quick sidebar, the reason that we associate sexual rep repression so much with the Victorian era um, is because after the death of Prince Albert, Queen Victoria was... No one gets to have sex if I do. <laughs> yeah, was regarded essentially as being so heartbroken and so traumatized and if you know anything about Queen Victoria, you know she took her mourning to the nth degree. She wore mourning clothes. She was super extra. She was very extra. She wore mourning clothes for the rest of her life after the death of her husband because she had loved him that much. And it was only after Albert's death that these Victoria started sort of these very strict rules of high society. And what was acceptable and what was appropriate. And it was a very repressed version mm -hmm. of life, a very sexually repressed, strict, you know, mega formal version of living. And of course with everything, things trickled down. So it started in Royal circles that moved out to high society. And then it trickled down to the whole point when, when you're at turn of the century, English society and really society the whole world over, the theme is great, great repression um, to the point where it hurts. Which is the name of Craig and I's new novel. Great, great about repression. About 1901. Yeah. We are writing a homoerotic vampire novel called Great, Great Repression. Yes, mama. <laughs> Set in 1901. Yeah. And it follows two couples. <laughs> One female, uh, one male. One, yeah, one all female, one all male. Guess who's writing each one? <laughs> We're actually twist. switching it up on you. Twist. <laughs> I was going to say twist. Mel is writing the guys. I'm writing the ladies. <laughs> it's going to be wild. About wild, what we guys. each think goes on in those relationships. <laughs> actually, that would be an interesting exercise. Interesting exercise. I mean, you know, mainly because it's... I feel like a lot of female writers think they know what goes on in male relationships, just because of the amount of female writers, specifically female YA writers, who write about male relationships. So it's and there's a lot of female YA writers that mm -hmm. write about male relationships. And I was like, wow, you're very braver than I am to think you know what goes on there. <laughs> that weird place that we're in right now, you know, where. It's that struggle between 
No, only write what you know and mm-hmm. don't you dare assume to know what another person goes through and Which... put yourself in another person's shoes so you can better understand them. So this is, and, and tell... you know who actually told me this is Jamie made a very good point about this because I mentioned this to her, right? Because I was worried about like writing something out of my lane as it were. And she was like, I think in the, as long as you're not making the story about that, it's okay, right? Like, if I don't go out and say, I'm going to write a story about a young man understanding his sexuality. And that's the only focus of your story. Yeah, and that's the focus, then that's not going to work because that's not my lane. That's not my story to tell. But the inclusion of these characters, right? Like, if your main character does happen to be a gay man, but it's not about him being a gay man, then mm. it's quote-unquote okay, right? Like, it's, it's, it's better that way. Like, it's not like you don't want to, like, if I want to say I want, which I do have a gay man in my sci-fi novel, like, but it's not about, you know, he's not a main, he's not like the main character. He's one of the main characters, but he's not one of the, he's not the POV character. Yeah. yeah. But it's not about him being gay. It's not about him being gay. He just happens to be gay. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And that's kind of like what I've carried through with this is that it's like, okay, like, as long as you're not trying to write about somebody's experience that you don't know it's okay. Or at the very least it's better or it's a good starting point. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have to think about that. I'm not a hundred percent. There's obviously ex exceptions to everything. It's just, I've used that as my first litmus test with these things where it's like, if I include a character outside of like my own identity and I say, okay, like, I just, I don't want us to get to a place. We are so off topic. I just don't want us to get to a place. Does. It gets you way off topic. It gets you confused. <laughs> but talking about Star so, Wars and gay so things. So picnic and hanging rock. Yes, that's um, exactly what they want to happen. I just, I think there's a lot of value in this happened because Craig and I joked about writing a vampire, a gay vampire. Novel. I know. I just want I, you to know how this started. <laughs> now we're gonna have to do it for real. Yeah. Um. I just, I, I think there can be a lot of value in people um doing their best to -hmm. put themselves in a in a different perspective in a different someone else's shoes and write a story from that perspective I think we can learn and gain a lot from that and I I just hope we don't get to a place where people are like well I can't write a a character like that because I'm not that and I'm like well, but you can learn about it and and do your best and like we could all have a conversation around that Cause you know, like, and I was thinking about it too, like different things where it's like, I should like, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, I should ask, you know, a person I know who's part of that identity. But at the same time, I was like, I don't want to like cause any duress by asking them those things. And there's certain things where it's like, I feel like I can understand to a point, like in terms of like, like a gay man or something like that, like to a point I can understand that. Like that's something I can, I can relate to and that sort of thing. But like somebody who's trans, yeah. And it's yeah. like, yeah, so right, but it's like somebody who's trans, who's got a much, got a lot of things going on in terms of their yeah. identity, or somebody who's a person of color. It's like, okay, there's things about that that I can't quite understand, and I'm not going to pretend though. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't include them in your work just because you right. say like, oh, like I don't know about it, so not, like that's also cop out. Yeah, right? like yeah, that's my thing, right? Like if you were to say like, you know, like I don't know what it's like to be a black man, so I'm not gonna ever write about a black man like that would make me sad yeah you know which like, i have a black man in my novel too. <sighs> coming at you guys 
coming at you. Novel number two. Anyway, um, oh my god. Anyway, oh my god. <laughs> um, so Mary. Okay. So here's. So we haven't even how, talked about Miranda yet. So here's how I'll connect this. Right. I'll say this. I'll say this. <laughs> this is what I'll say. <laughs> Vis a vis. The following. <laughs> In both the miniseries and the film, the cinematography is gorgeous. That's not a connection. Hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) It is also very haunting, very dreamlike, Mm -hmm. and it refuses to give both order and answers. And as such, visually, it is very meandering okay yes i see where this okay we are we are the cinematography i'm there i'm with you it's interesting because i feel like and i mentioned this to mr gregors when i was watching it is i feel like the cinematography here was very influenced by lynch in this version of it it's very influenced by and being said i feel like lynch was influenced by picnic Picnic in terms of the entirety of laura palmer so I, we're circling back. Do not quote me on this, mm-hmm. listeners. And I might have to correct myself in the following episode. <laughs> but I think there is an interview with David Lynch where he cites Picnic at Hanging Rock that would not as a creative influence. Yeah, no, that would not shock me. And especially now, like, with this new version of Picnic and Hanging Rock and just the way it comes full circle. Because let's assume for a second, okay, that's true. Because it's, like, thematically you can see the similarities between Picnic and Hanging Rock and Twin Peaks. Oh, for sure. Like, basically, Twin Peaks is the 90s version of Picnic and Hanging Rock. Of Picnic and Hanging Rock. Essentially, right? So then we go forward to 2018 where we've got this new fangled Amazon version that totally takes its cinematographic cues from Lynch's work, which was yep. in turn inspired by the original Picnic and Hanging Rock in the 1970s. Which, oh my gosh, guys, like, I, I know we talked about this before when we were doing Twin Peaks, but you can already see um, directors and creative people, like, fashioning their work off of the Twin Peaks uh, season three. You can already see it happening, and oh, it makes me like, really, really excited. That one is very good. Um, people are already... And it's, it's going to be exactly like before. The, the most recent Twin Peaks In 25 years, we'll changing. see you guys again. <laughs> it's, changing, it's changing television, essentially. Yeah. The end. No, and it's really unfortunate because it got no recognition for that from an awards standpoint. As per it did what not. happened but last you, time. But if you look up every review and every like oh, critical eye that was turned best towards of it, list. it was on everybody's best of list. People were saying it was... Listen, the great, um, what the? F- what, I don't want to get into another. Got a light best but. episode of television. I would say in the past twenty ten years since Twin Peaks itself. Yes. What am I doing right now? <laughs> He's <laughs> nodding yes. vigorously. I think he might headbutt the the camera. Um, but yeah. So like that's but, that's the going back to the cinematography. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no, but but your point is is that if you know Twin Peaks, like Miss Mel and I know Twin Peaks, you see its influence in this miniseries of Picnic and Hanging Rock, and you yeah. see it very clearly. And the the most obvious sense is that you see it in the in the cinematography. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is very enigmatic and it's all about the dream state. Yeah. And like, there's different points where it's like, okay, it's very clear. It's a dream state and it's not so clear. Like one of the moments was where all the students turn on Irma. It felt so dreamlike and so surreal, but it was actually happening. And then there's these moments that are dreamlike a lot with Mrs. Appleyard where she's, she's walking and it's this great horrifying shot where she's walking in the laundry line and she stops and there's this like beat of music and then just behind her hanging off the laundry line by their hair are the three missing girls and she doesn't turn around she doesn't look at you, them she you just, did it too you did it too and miss mccraw and miss mccraw <laughs> everybody forgets um so they're all hanging there she stops she waits a minute she doesn't turn around and look at them like she doesn't and then she just keeps walking which I, I don't know about you, but I loved that she did not look at them. Yeah. Like she's, a, you're very aware that she's probably aware that this phantasm that would be happening in her world too. Like if we break the fourth wall, cause she stops and she kind of almost turns her head and then she just keeps walking. She does not turn around and look at them. Absolutely right. Absolutely mm -hmm. right. We should talk about, well, first of all, we need to talk about Miranda. <laughs> All right, let's do Miranda. Let's... And then we'll do Miss Appleyard. Okay. Miranda. Botticelli Angel. Confirmed Botticelli Angel Miranda. Botticelli as Angel. Madame de Pontier. An angel. So, Miranda. Uh, played in the original movie by the great Anne-Louise Lambert. And um, played... I will say, interestingly, in the miniseries by Lily Sullivan. Interestingly. Tell me more. Um, I, as the viewer, mm -hmm. was not as magnetically drawn to her portrayal of Miranda as I am okay. to um, Anne-Marie Lambert's in the movie. I could so. see that. Um, and maybe it's just because I was so focused on Irma being the fucking babysitter and the fact that Natalie Dormer was around every corner that it was hard for me to be like, oh, Miranda's the important one. <laughs> Natalie Dormer was just lurking and yeah, waiting. Yeah, no, that's the thing, right? Like, you have Natalie Dormer in this and you're like, oh, like, she has to be Miranda, but that makes no fucking sense because she's way too old to be Miranda. So I do yes, feel like that, yes. was, that was maybe a minor pitfall here is that it's like, okay, Miranda is supposed to be our focus in this, but like this miniseries was obviously adapted around the idea of Miss Appleyard and everything that kind of goes on around her, right? Because yeah. it's Natalie Dormer. And obviously if she's on screen, you're going to look at her. Um, Which so, is not to say... I, well, no, we'll go for it. it. I was still no, no, trying no. to formulate. Uh, no, no, no. I was just, I was going to say, which is not to say that like, that's incorrect in any way. I mean, Natalie Dormer from an acting standpoint is very much the highlight of the miniseries. Mm -hmm. um, I just think she has such a presence that it's that she, like when she's in the scene, you have to be very good to take attention away from her. You do. And it doesn't happen often. Um, yeah. But anyway, Miranda, Miranda. So Miranda back to Miranda. So Miranda, like, and it's interesting that you say this, right? Cause you're not as magnetically drawn to her, but I feel like, part of the script of the show knew that because of the amount of times people reiterate to us how free Miranda is and how great she is and how much everyone's obsessed with her. Like it comes up a lot to the point where it feels like the show is 
telling us instead of showing us, because we don't get a lot of these moments where you see the sort of erythralness of Miranda, but you see how much everyone else is devoted to her for some reason. Yeah. And in my mind, it's like, okay, like, you know, for me, I'll buy that. Like, that's enough for me to say there's something about Miranda that has everybody sort of drawn in. But I do see where you're coming from, too, where it's like she had such like a magnetic portrayal in the 1970s film that it's difficult yes. to re for anyone to recapture unless they were Natalie Dormer playing Miranda. Yeah, I think that's the trouble. Yes, you're exactly right. Like the Miranda, the character is supposed to be very magnetic, but Natalie Dormer, the actress, is our most magnetic presence yeah. on screen. So that's what the show so, sort of formatted around. Instead of Miranda, it's Miss Appleyard. And Miranda yeah. is just kind of this 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 recurring thorn in her side um, legacy type thing that she can't get rid of because she's always... Natalie <laughs> Dormer's just like, Miranda. Like, Miranda. What, about what? What about Miranda? <laughs> what about Miranda? Are we doing this again? Yes, Jesus. Miss yes. Appleyard. Yes. We're doing this again. Um doing this again and I do think Lily Sullivan did hold her own like in those scenes that yeah. she had with Natalie Dormer like I thought those scenes in her office were very like I would also be shriveling and peeing myself in the presence of Natalie Dormer so I feel that Lily Sullivan um but yeah right like it's just and you know it, it I guess it lends itself to what kind of story are you telling right because it's like here it's like mm -hmm. Mrs. Apple Yard is the focus is the enigmatic enigmatic domineering person and Miranda is kind of this upstart to weed in her garden that has yes. clearly caused a huge problem for, for everything that she has worked to build. And it's interesting that you say that, right? Because Miranda is not only literally an upstart, I think to Mrs. Appleyard <laughs> in their personal relationship and in terms of the world of the college, mm -hmm. but Miranda is also symbolically like, the general upstart to the natural social order. Yeah. Circling back to why Miranda is the leader of the clique and not Irma. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, you know, if you were going by Victorian social norms, Irma, by right of precedence, should be calling the shots. Yeah. So she's not. It's Miranda. And she very willingly follows Miranda, too. Like, we understand later that mm -hmm. she's pissed off about it, but, like... And all the flashbacks, she, sure she just super 100% defers to Miranda, like, when she doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. And that's another one of the great themes of Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is the exploration of class. Mm -hmm. um, and how it, the, the boundaries of class started to become blurred and started to crumble and started to become a lot more fluid around the turn of the century. And how generally speaking, um, that unnerved and disturbed those of the old order. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, like, <clears throat> so that Botticelli angel line is, like, just such a famous line that I felt like they included yes, it, it just is. because they were like, we can't not include it. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, it kind of does come out of nowhere, but, like, as somebody who's seen the original Picnic and Hanger, I'm like, okay, yeah, there it is. There's the... There They're about is. to disappear. There they go. Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk. Do you want to tell our listeners more about that line? You can do like it. Like the context of that line? You okay, yeah. So when we're at the titular picnic. Ooh, I got to say titular. <laughs> titular. <laughs> it took um, us this long to get to the titular picnic. 
after the meal, the the majority of the nineteen girls fall asleep, and four same. girls are same brunch nap. Um, yep, and but, but four girls are still awake. <clears throat> Miranda, Miranda Irma, Marion, and Edith. Edith. The three senior girls ask Miss McCraw and Mademoiselle de Poitier if they can do a little bit of further exploring of the rock. They, um, in the novel, they claim they want to take measurements. I think they say the same thing in the movie. In the miniseries, I think they just say they just want to get closer. I can't remember. Yeah, because they're supposed to. They're supposed to write a paper that Marion is On supposed Monday. to grade. <laughs> yeah. Marion has to grade the papers because she like scoffed, or because she threw something. shade. Yeah, yeah. So, so Mrs. Albion was like, "I'm gonna throw shade right back." Um, You're gonna fucking grade those papers out of ten. Hell yeah, out of ten. Oh my god. So they're given permission by Mademoiselle de Poitiers, and as they're departing for the rock, which we. Well, we know as the viewer now, not if you're a first-time viewer, is the last time that um, two of them are to ever be seen. Mademoiselle de Poitiers remarks that Miranda looks like a Botticelli angel. You know, referring to the great artist Botticelli's work. (laughs) And it's left in both the movie and the miniseries as a quasi-haunting sort of overtone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and Miss McCraw has a snarky remark that angels don't climb trees. Miss McCraw is jealous that she can't climb a tree. Miss McCraw is so jealous. She's never climbed a tree in her life. She's very salty about it. <laughs> <laughs> And it has since become one of the famous lines of Picnic and Hanging Rock, um, including um, when Miranda's, Miranda's line about the, the rock has been waiting a million years just for us. Same. And as well as what we see and what we see about a dream, a dream within a dream. She's quoting Edgar Allan Poe, but. Her delivery she is. probably doesn't know that. <laughs> she probably heard it somewhere. Mm. She's a simple. Turns out she's the daughter of a cattle farmer. We learn. She yes, we learn this. Um, who is basically the nouveau riche in the beginning of the nouveau riche, which ties into all the stuff we've said. So, which is why she's at the college. Touching quickly because we still have to get to Miss Appleyard and the rock itself, Sarah. Damn. I know. And Michael. It's bad. And Michael. It's going to be, this might be longer than the witch podcast. (laughs) So Sarah Wayborn is like um, Miranda's little gremlin. She like follows her around. She loves her. She's obsessed with her. She's kind of, you know, she lets her come home during one of the holidays with her. Um, You know, and Sarah just kind of, you know, it's her big buddy, right? Like it's her, her sorority big sister. But as the story goes on, you kind of get to see that there's this sort of like crush going on that Sarah just kind of has this, and she's just enamored with this, this older teenage girl and she writes her poems and (laughs) Miranda gives her a picture of herself for Valentine's Day, which like, same. Um, (laughs) But Sarah has this sort of interesting relationship with Miss Appleyard because basically the suggestion is is that she is Miss Appleyard, right? Like she too grew up in an orphanage. Like she too is like this 
kind of like um stubborn sort of just cranky rebellious child that miss appleyard was so miss appleyard sees that and kind of has this endearingness towards her but also like wants to punch her in the face um and eventually what happens is, is Sarah, who was separated from her brother as a child, recognizes that our dear friend Bertie is her brother. What? Mm-hmm. Crazy. Attempts what? to go after him. Dies. <laughs> dies. Uh, she disappears. A couple episodes later, she's found in the garden dead, at which point everything kind of unravels for Mrs. Appleyard. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, Sarah's this wild child and she was forbidden from going to the picnic. Um, the day of the picnic, she was told she was not allowed to go because it was yes. Miranda's punishment that her her little buddy was not allowed to go to the picnic. Um, yes, as suggested by Miss Lumley. Miss Lumley, who's a piece of crap. Um, yeah. So, in playing, I guess, with Miss Appleyard, because... Miranda kind of has, Miranda and Sarah kind of have this, like, cold war with Miss Appleyard, because Sarah, like, sneaks into her shit a lot, and basically realizes that Miss Appleyard's, like, not Mrs. Appleyard, like, not what she says she is. Like, there's this great line in the beginning where she's walking through, you know, checking out the, the manse, the mansion that's meant to become the college, and, um, you know, she says things, she says something like, you know, you quack like a duck, you're a duck, you act like a widow, and then she doesn't finish the line. Right. Because um, she's posing as the Widow Appleyard. Um, the Widow Appleyard. In her head, she's got this Cockney London accent. But when she speaks to other people, she's got her Natalie Dormer accent. So you know she's hiding Posh something. Posh upper class. Yeah. So you know she's hiding something. Um, and there's suggestions throughout that she's some sort of social climber. We see her dreams. She's got these, you know, like something happened there. Basically what we learn is that she was an orphan who was taken in by this guy, this like crime lord who used her for thievery, pimps her out, basically all these things. And she eventually escapes from him to Australia to start this college, takes her name from a soapbox tin, Mrs. Appleyard's soap. And that's what Miranda discovers um, and kind of uses as blackmail against Miss Appleyard in the first episode. Although we don't realize that's it until the very last episode. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's basically been running from the demons of her past her whole life only to find out that these demons that she's been running from have been dead for years. Um, Her her master, Arthur, uh, died before she even set foot in Australia, but she's kind of yep. felt him dodging her steps her entire life, and she realizes basically, like, this which sucks. I, yeah. <laughs> um, which, or, did you have more? Mm-hmm. Sorry. Okay. Which I thought was a really great and interesting way of exploring the character of Mrs. Appleyard's paranoia in a different way than the movie does, mm-hmm. right? Because <clears throat> this this backstory is unique to the miniseries. Yeah. You just kind of get yeah. hints of it in the movie. She's like, you know, we she's get... an alcoholic. You know, yes. she's got some shit going on, but there's nothing to yeah. suggest that she's a super fucking con artist liar. Yeah, there's nothing to suggest that she's a con artist. There, Yeah, like Miss Mo said, there are hints for, you know, we see the alcoholism, there are hints that she has great social ambitions and that her, her mental state is kind of tied into that. Um, but the specifics are new to the miniseries. And 
Whereas a lot of people might say, oh, there's a danger in that. I actually think it worked because you, one of the great things about the second half of Picnic and Hanging Rock is Mrs. Appleyard's descent into paranoid madness. Mm-hmm. And in the film, it works because we don't have enough information. And and we see her unraveling and we just have to guess why. In the miniseries, it works because we get we get the answer that her paranoia is all for nothing. Yeah. You, you know, like she didn't she wasn't being dogged step to step. There was no threat of her eventually being exposed. She does it to herself and that makes the story all the more tragic. Yeah. And it really works both ways while still keeping the theme that in the wake of the disappearance she descends into chaos. The last scene of the show was incredible. The last shot. It was great. Um, But yeah, no, like, that's it, right? Because we don't get enough of a backstory. Like, basically, you know, you piece together what happened. Like, you know, there was this guy, Arthur, that was controlling her. Like, you don't know exactly how. You get the idea that he probably pimped her out. He probably made her do some shit that wasn't great. She probably, you know, was part of what we would know today as, like, some sort of crime underworld type thing. And she eventually gets free. Like, they don't go into it too much. And you see this guy who's down in Australia that she knows from her past, who just, she mm-hmm. vaguely knows he was maybe an associate of him. We see him once in the flashbacks. And he's just like, oh, yeah, like, Arthur died, like, years ago. At which point she then takes a trip to the rock and climbs to the top. Um, and climbs to the top. You know, and it's just, it's handled so well because it's like, on the one hand, you're like, oh, like, yeah, like, this is like the over-mythologizing. This is the thing we hate. But it's like, no, like, it's explaining just enough to say, this is her paranoia. It's just enough. And it was for nothing. And she just, just like, I'm I'm out. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Um, because she is the epitome, right? Like, so, the, the, the true story of Picnic and Hanging Rock is not how or why the girls disappeared. It's how that affects, how the disappearance affects everyone afterwards, right? It's the unraveling of the community. Yeah. And we see that most interestingly, I think, in the character of Mrs. Appleyard. Yeah. Yeah. That crazy bitch. Crazy bitch. She's wild. So the rock itself, one of the major interpretations of... So the rock is real, by the way. The Hanging Rock, Mount Diogenes, is a real Mm -hmm. formation in Australia. Um, And it's interesting because the original novel was written as if it were a true story, which has made it basically become kind of folklore in Australian folklore, culture. Um, Because of the way it was was portrayed as it being a true story. But basically... Well, and Joe Lindsay, for years and years and years, when people would ask, did you base this on something real? She would be very cagey. Yeah. Yeah, so it's one of those fun things. It was like, did it happen? Didn't happen? I don't know. Um, But one of the major interpretations of it as well is basically colonization itself and the way the land kind of responds to colonizers and rejects them. And mm-hmm. basically what happens is you've got all these white aristocratic people, you know, coming in for a nice aristocratic picnic at this thing that is ancient. Um, it's been around. Yes. Like it's, and it's told to us that it's ancient because before this we're told by, I think like fucking Edith's over here talking about like 
the volcano, how like magma solidified to create the rock and telling us the science behind it. And everyone's like, shut up, Edith, like nobody cares. Um, and they're at the rock and they're having their aristocratic moment at the rock and they're being, you know, you know, the, you know, it's like the epitome of like colonization, right? Like these mm-hmm. white British empire people at this very ancient formation and like their clocks aren't working like everyone's got everyone's like watches and timepieces are like fucking up and they don't know why and these four people (laughs) go missing up on the rock um because they decide they're gonna go exploring and um it's like the rock and the land itself just eats them and there's no trace of them um, exactly. So a lot of people have taken it as an interpretation of colonization and the native land itself kind of reacting to and rejecting um, colonizers. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, um, very much the story presents it to us that the European mannerisms are inappropriate mm-hmm. in this part of the world. Um that they don't fit with the Australian wilderness, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, um, there's kind of this conflict and um, that's what I'm looking for. Can't think of it. Doesn't matter. Pressing on. Uh, All of the sort of Aussie characters right are presented as being very liberated very earthy you know the the servants the workers i'm thinking of albert primarily mm-hmm. and everyone else the old order the victorians are very repressed very stiff very strict and it's and they're the characters who suffer and are hurt by um what they're doing um I mean, even 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 the school itself, right? Is like the the building architecturally is this like proud model of Victorian order, yeah. But and it, and it's juxtaposed constantly against the wild Australian terrain, and there's very much the sense that like this doesn't fit. Yeah. I mean, even even in the novel, there, there's a passage where it's like, no one is quite sure exactly why the school was built where it was built, because it, it it's such a an odd mesh. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's such yeah. a great theme. And it's interesting, too, because you even think about it, like, Australia was the place where people got sent to because they were like social outcasts and yeah. lawbreakers. So it's like, what the hell is a finishing school? Do- Why would somebody send their daughter to a finishing school in Australia? Right. Because that is why, segueing, Mike is in Australia. Um, we are told that he was sent here for his quote-unquote own good. It becomes very apparent that that own good is something to do with his sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to... Yeah. Talk so, about shirtless Albert. <laughs> huh. So, so yeah, so let's talk about, I mean, um, I think we've sort of been talking a lot and dancing around like order and chaos, right? Yeah. And a great 
example of that in in the picnic at Hanging Rock story is Albert and Michael, where Albert symbolizes chaos and Michael symbolizes order. Um, Michael is upper class. Um, and he's gentry. He's titled. He's the honorable Michael Fitzhubert. And Albert is uh, someone without a name. You know, he tells us that his father changed the family name uh, frequently in his childhood to suit whatever was going on, you know, to suit their purposes of survival. So he sort of might, you know, Albert has this fluid identity, right. With, with no order to it. Whereas Michael's identity is tied very, very strictly to his family name Mm -hmm. and to how much that name carries and to what it means. And as we see their interactions throughout the story, we see order breaking down, right? Which is the larger theme of this story. And we see that symbolized in Michael, right? At the garden party, he removes his top hat and we never see him wear it again. You know, the top hat being a very pretty clear symbol of aristocratic privilege. After that, he wears a much wider hat similar to Albert's, um, as he's as he starts growing closer to Albert, you know, it's like call me Mike. You know, yeah. um, he goes out exploring on his own. He gets very dirty, uh, and it's all meant to be sort of like the breakdown of the old order, where chaos comes in. But interestingly, mm-hmm. at the end of all things. It's only Michael and Albert that sort of end the story in a place of, I think you used the word happiness earlier. Yeah. It's the closest Um, thing we get to a happy ending. It's the closest thing we get to a happy ending. And I'm thinking that, like, they almost, we almost end the story with them in a place of synthesis. Mm -hmm. Like, where through their relationship, there's a new order being born out of mm-hmm. chaos. Interesting. Yeah, that no, I can sense. totally see that. Because it's like, yeah, they are the only ones who get sort of this happy, happy ending. Um, so it's like it is indicative of that sort of shift um, towards yeah. new order, newer things, progress, progressivism. I don't think it's a word. Progression is probably a better one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That works for me. Um, So I, yeah, so I sort of view their relationship as very much like a meditation on like um, founding myths and, and colonialism and emerging sexuality and chaos and order and nature and civilization, like Mm -hmm. all in one relationship. Um. That's just me. Yeah. Picnic and Hanging Rock. (laughs) Picnic and Hanging Rock. A lot to digest in six episodes. There is a lot to digest in six episodes. No, I feel like we should do at least a little bit of a discussion on the theme of time. Be careful, though. Because there is a exercise chapter that shall not be named. Yeah. What? Uh... I so, do love how they play with time in this, though. 
Yeah. The exercise chapter included in the narrative or not, you can't deny that time and space don't apply around the rock. Yeah. For whatever reason. We'll For whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and uh, the theme of time is very prevalent in the movie, a little bit less so in the miniseries. Um, but, it, but it's still there. For instance, in the movie, right, there are clocks all over the school. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in Mrs. Appleyard's office, there's a constant ticking. And that ticking only stops at the end of the movie when we get the narration of what has happened to Mrs. Appleyard after her excursion to the rock. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that this theme plays a lot into the rock as its own character because the mini series is great because we get to know these characters a lot more. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the movie, this is not a movie you want to watch if you're looking for an in-depth character study, because you're only going to get hints and suggestions and just a little bit here and there, because the main character in the movie is hanging rock. Yeah. Um, Um, so it's interesting because they give an explanation, like a scientific explanation for it in the show. They mention that because everyone's watches don't work and one of the police officers mentions that there's some sort of, which I don't think they would have known about in Victorian England, but whatever. Victorian times, we're not (laughs) in England. Um, but he mentions there's something about the magnetism, like the magnetic field around the rock, which is a thing, you know, there is magnetic fields and stuff I have yet to you know I don't know if it happens so localized (laughs) as to be around an object because we've got a north and south pole and that's pretty much it but you know maybe this is part of the Victorian pseudoscience explanations but he basically tries to say like oh there's something about the magnetism in the area and the metal and it messes with clocks um which like you're willing to buy because it's like whatever that works sure um you know, at the same time, it does play into, you know, Victorian colonizing stuff because it's like they don't know mm-hmm. what the fuck is going on. So, yeah, sure. They'd be like, oh, yeah, it's the magnets in the mountain are messing with your fancy Victorian watches. Um, so that makes sense. And then there's the mystical side where it's like, OK, clearly there's something going on here because when we do get kind of to the end and see kind of piece together as close as we're going to get to seeing what happens, you see that time is just not making sense at all because they're on the rock and there's people looking for them. And, and Mrs. Appleyard is in the middle of climbing the rock and they're in the middle of their scenes back at the, during the picnic. And they like kind of almost hear Mrs. Appleyard, even though that's months into the future and like all this other stuff. So time is just a wish wash on the rock for whatever reason, whether you want to explain it with pseudoscience, with real science, with kind of this theme of like colonizers can't possibly understand the native land that they're, Uh that they're getting on. 
no matter what. Like, I thought that was such a great sequence where you just cut between the girls, what the girls see, kind of, and how they kind of perceive their outside world, where they're like, oh, that's weird. What are those people doing down there? And then Mrs. Appleyard coming up around the corner, and they've got these tracking shots where they just sort of, like, cleverly, like, edit them to to make different people disappear from different shots. Um, and the whole thing's just bizarre, and I love it. Yes. Yes. Um, because what I don't think we've directly said is that you do not officially explicitly know what happened on the rock. Which I love. (laughs) Yeah. That is my number one thing. Don't fucking tell me what happened. Let me see agony forever. Let me debate it with people on Reddit. Yes. Yes. And I, I'm I'm sure I said this back in episode one. Like that is one of the great things about this story. You don't get a resolution. You get your ending, but you don't get a resolution. You don't get a hard and fast answer. Because in the end, that's not what the story is about. It's not about what happened to them. It's about how what happened affects the community yeah. around them. And it's so brilliant. Which was meant to be the point of Twin Peaks, but... Yes, it was. Sometimes things get in the way. Sometimes things get... Okay, it clearly rebounded. <laughs> yeah. Um, but don't worry. It, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it confused you even more. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it's so great. Like, I think this did such justice to something that you could so easily fuck up. Um, and Natalie yeah, Dormer did, did so great. And it's interesting because it's like, on the one hand, I do think Natalie Dormer and the character of Miss Appleyard stole focus, which was traditionally allocated to Miranda. But I also think they played it in such a great way where she kind of like recognized Miranda as a threat of some sort. Um, so it played good, well, yeah. where it was like, there it was did. a kind of tug of war between them. Um, and you know, ultimately Miranda won in, in Miss Appleyard's, in yeah. Miss Appleyard's world. Um, so I just, I think the whole thing played out so well and I think it was just such a great adaptation and I had no idea that it was going to be a thing until it was a thing. Nope. Just popped up and I said, oh, okay. Okay, hey, how are you? Meanwhile, they've been talking about the Dune adaptation from uh, the guy who did Arrival for years. <laughs> and the Netflix adaptation of um, uh, Haunting of Hill House. Yes, well, that is supposed to be Halloween of this year, Okay, I think. We've got a date. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, last that I heard. Great. I'm into it. Into it. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Picking and hanging rock. Gosh. Um, very happy that, you know, this story that I love so much, let me say it just one more time. My third favorite horror movie was done justice with a new adaptation of its source material. And I hope that either the show or this episode um, brings a lot of listeners back to the original film, to the novel. I'm actually, I just started rereading it. 
this Ooh. weekend because I couldn't get it out of my head after watching the show. So I was. Like, I have yet to actually read the novel. So good. Obviously, I, I don't. I'll trade you your own copy. I will trade you your own copy of The Martian. <laughs> which is on my bookshelf over there <laughs> well this will be interesting because I have to give you your own copy of Who Fears Death which I haven't read yet interesting we've got a three way trade going on <laughs> have a three way trade with Who Fears Death The Martian, Picnic Gang, and Rock what a group Yeah. <laughs> you read The Martian though right? yeah no, I finished it haven't. a while ago Yeah. yeah. and yeah, I yeah. watched the movie like 18 times because I hadn't seen the movie because I was like, yeah. I'm not going to see the movie until I read the book. Until you read the book. And it was just like, it's so, it's such a Mel story. Yeah, no, everyone was literally <laughs> saying, they're like, how have you not read The Martian? I was like, I don't know. And they're like, you need to read The Martian. And then when so. I read The Martian, I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this is, this is my story. <laughs> I, I wrote this? Um, it's entirely probable. Yeah, no, you don't know. You'll never know. Um yeah cool yes yeah, so picnic and hang rock excellent i'm like really happy that we got to do a whole episode devoted yeah. to this Thanks basically so. we were waiting for this to happen so we could do a whole episode about picnic <laughs> it only took a year two almost two coming up on two in yeah. august yeah we were doing the math you're doing the math. All right. So, Miss Mel, now that we've wrapped up with Picnic at Hanging Rock, do you want to tell our lovely listeners where they can find us if they want to get in touch with us about Picnic at Hanging Rock? It is my time. Um, you can, first of all, email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can tweet us at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels. If that is too difficult, just search it in the search bar. We will be the first thing that pops up. You can find us on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can find us on Instagram at splatterchatter666. Nothing because that's not how Instagram works. <laughs> it's just splatterchatter666. Um, you can see Craig's blog at splatterchatter666.blogspot.com, where I'm sure he will have more things to say about Picnic and Hanging Rock. If not, um, he's had a great post recently yeah. about um, in conjunction with our Witches podcast. You can check out. Oh, thank you. Um, and he can give you information about how we can, how you can give us your money. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, quick thing about the blog. I actually, a couple years ago, for an independent film company, I was writing a couple articles for them um, while they were working on a movie. And one, I wrote a review for them about Picnic and Hanging Rock. Um, this was actually... Um, who are who were our, friend, our friends that we miss so much? They emailed us and then we... Oh, that couple in Florida. Yes, you guys actually referenced this article when you emailed us. Um, that review that I wrote, Picnic and Hanging Rock, I will post on the blog once this episode is up, just so you guys can have some supplementary. It's, I, it's, essentially, it's exactly everything I've said so far. And how much <laughs> I love this movie, how much I love the movie, and why I love the movie. Anyway, um, so look for that on the blog, but yes, as Miss Mel said, our Patreon page is live on our Patreon page. We're accepting, um, pledging donations at the one, five or $10 level. If you choose to pledge to us, we want to use your donate or your monthly donations to do a couple different things. We would love to get some more, um, 
official equipment uh, for recording purposes so um, so that we're just a bit more legit. We would love to use your, uh, your donations to help us in going to see um, new releases in horror so that we can provide up-to-date reviews for you guys. And we would love to use your donations to eventually work up to a place where we can provide merch. Merch. Um, Mainly because we want t-shirts of ourselves. Yeah, we sure do. And, oh, and we would love to use your donations um, to work up towards attending one of the awesome uh, horror conventions that are held around the country every year, um, just so we can be a part of this amazing community that exists around horror films. Now, if you choose to donate to donate to us and become a Patreon at the $1, 5 or $10 level, there's a couple different perks you could get. If you become a Jason subscriber at the $1 level, that gets you a subscription to The Howler, which is the official Splatter Chatter monthly newsletter. So In that one of you. <laughs> one of you is at that level. You're going to get it. That The first edition of The Howler is coming out in June of 2018. And in that newsletter, we have a couple of different things going on. Um, first and foremost is the horror picks of the month in film, TV, and literature. That is the picks from myself and Miss Mel. Mm -hmm. In that newsletter, you're also going to get um, additional horror headlines. What's going on in the horror community? We will tell you. You're also going to get the book club of the month selection. Now, if you choose to become a Freddy donor, that's $5 a month, you're going to get a subscription to the newsletter as well as horror Q&A. That means you, you can submit a question to us and we will answer it at the top of the most the next episode, the most you recent episode. You the top of the hour. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> and then I was like, nope, that's not right. Nope. Um, any question you have, something about horror that you've always wondered about, um, an actor, a director, a movement, a specific film, talk to us about it. We'll give you our expertise answer on the question. And if you choose to become a Michael donor, that means donating $10 a month to the show, You'll have all the perks from Jason and Freddie, plus you'll become a show programmer. That means you could get to pick a topic that Miss Mel and I will cover for an entire upcoming episode. There's a few restrictions on that, which you can find out more on the Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash chatter 666 Nice. Excellent. Woo! Got it all out there, kids. I got it all out there, kids. I got it all out there, kids. All right. Now, with that all out of the way, we want to wish you guys um, a very happy Pride. Mm -hmm. um, we will be at you guys, of course, in another two weeks with another episode. Um, we're not exactly sure what that's going to be. Maybe it'll be related to LGBT horror. Maybe it won't. We shall see. Um, but until we see you guys again, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And until the next episode, we will say au revoir, adios. <laughs> <laughs>